0: Hey, good morning, everyone. If you want to find a seat, we're going to get started here. Our story for today, as we read a little bit earlier, comes from John chapter 10. Um, we do this every year on the fourth Sunday of Eastertide, Good Shepherd Sunday. Um, but the kind of the background of the story is Jesus was in Jerusalem with his disciples, and he had just healed the man who was born blind since birth, right? And, and this big controversy followed the Pharisees like interrogate the man, see if it's true, then interrogate his parents to see if he was really blind since birth and then haul him back in, try to get him to implicate Jesus. And the big question was Jesus' authority. Like what gave him the authority to to teach and to heal people? Um, Some said it came from the devil, some said it came from God, and the Pharisees said, well, he can't be from God because he violated the the Sabbath. If you remember, he um, made clay and put it on the guy's eye, which is... Break, you can't need clay on the Sabbath. It breaks Sabbath. And, and um, the Jewish leaders, they're, they're like pressuring and hassling this guy and threatening to put his parents out of the synagogue. And so in our text for today, Jesus is answering this, um, the question of authority, and he's trying to do it without getting the guy or his parents in trouble, right? And, and, or getting arrested himself. And so this is part of how he tries to answer their question And I lay down my life for the sheep. I heard a story this week that um, I love. It's, uh, it, it began on a crisp October day back in 1906 in Berlin. And there was a sergeant in the German army. He's walking his squad back to their barracks just down the street in, in Berlin. When out of the blue, this officer approached him. Uh, it was a captain about 50 years old, a slender man, kind of sunken cheeks and a large white mustache. He was maybe a little bit shabby and gaunt. However, he was dressed smartly in his captain's uniform with its broad shoulders and and uh, tall boots. I mean, he was just unmistakable. And the captain didn't even introduce himself. He just gruffly asked, where are you taking these men? And the sergeant said, we're headed back to our Barracks, and the captain shot back, turn them around and follow me. I have an urgent mission from the all highest command. That meant a, a command that came right down from the Kaiser. And so the sergeant and his men turned around and started following this captain. He was leading them toward the train station. And on the way, they encountered another squad, a little bit bigger squad. And the captain ordered them, you men, all of you, fall in behind us. We have, we have um, an important task. The Kaiser has commanded it. And so they joined in. All these guys following this this man, and they boarded a train um, headed for the little town of Kaepernick, and it's just kind of almost like a suburb south of Berlin, about 20 miles. And when they arrived, the captain marched them straight up to the city hall, and in front of the building, he sent a squad to cover the exits, don't let anybody out, and um, he sent a, a few to the, to the switchboard operator. Don't let any calls in or out. To the rest, he said, follow me. And they rushed into the building up the stairs and burst into the mayor's office. And there they found two men, Georg Langerans, the, um, the mayor, and then his, his right-hand man, the town treasurer. And the captain said, my name is Captain Voigt. And then he, he explained that he had been charged by the Kaiser to come arrest them the mayor and the treasurer, um, because they were suspected of embezzlement of funds. And and the mayor was immediately irate. He's like, what is the meaning of this? He demanded to see a warrant, and the captain's like, look, my men are are the warrant, okay? You're coming with me. I've seen the evidence. You're skimming off the town coffers. He said the Kaiser himself had ordered him to come and to confiscate the cash reserves for safekeeping so they couldn't steal any more money, and to escort these two guys with their ledgers to be interrogated and the the books to be examined. And so the captain, then he ordered the treasurer to open the safe. And in front of everybody, they brought all the money out and made everyone watch as it was counted. He wrote a detailed receipt, insisting that the treasurer himself verify the count, stamp the receipt and enter it into the ledger. And um, the total was like 4,000 marks in today's money. This was a lot. It's like a quarter million dollars, a lot of money and they put it into the bag and gathered up the ledgers and took the prisoners down to the street and he got that first sergeant and his men um, to, to grab a town car and put all those guys in the car and and he said, take them back to the to the police precinct right where we, we began in Berlin. Um, I'll bring the ledgers and the money, I'll meet you there. And um, then he dismissed them and then he came back to the other squad and said, Thanks for the help, good job, dismissed them as well. And then he turned back and went toward the train station, but he didn't immediately get on the train. Instead, he went to the baggage claim and picked up a little um, package there, took it into the bathroom, locked himself in a stall, and a few minutes later, he emerged um, almost unrecognizable. He changed into normal civilian clothes, walked across the crowded concourse, kind of looking around to see if he's being followed, boarded the train to Berlin with his captain's uniform under one arm and a big old bag of money under the other arm. And um, Meanwhile, back in Berlin, when the sergeant and his men arrived at the police station um, and began their attempts to surrender these prisoners, nobody at the station had any idea what they were talking about. There were no arrest orders waiting. There was no interrogation plan for these guys. And so the officers started calling up the chain of command. And, and by the end of the day, the head of the German general staff, he's like, you know, the, the chief law enforcement guy, came down to the station. And what he found is nobody that he talked to had received any orders from the Kaiser. Nobody had heard anything about this operation. Nobody knew of any reason to suspect these two guys of any kind of crime. In fact, nobody could recall ever having even met some guy named Captain Voigt. With good reason, um, as you probably suspect, because Captain Voigt never really existed. Um, who they had met instead was this, this guy named Wilhelm Voigt. He was an ex-shoemaker and kind of low-level criminal, fresh out of jail, had never been in the Army, had absolutely no authority here whatsoever. All he had was a captain's uniform that he had sort of pieced together from Army surplus things and, and asking tailors to help him. And so just with this captain's uniform, and I gotta say, a lot of confidence, man. <laughs> he, he made off with a quarter million dollars, just like that. Well, it wasn't long before the German newspapers found out and picked up the story and the country became enthralled with this tale. How could some guy with, you know, just off the street, no authority, like no official experience even, just command uh, like a platoon of soldiers and order them to steal a ton of money from a town safe and arrest the mayor and his treasure without any kind of evidence or warrant or paperwork, and, and to do so basically without anybody questioning what he, what he was doing. Well, Voight, um, meanwhile, thought he had gotten away with a crime, um, and it, it, but it turns out he had shared this plan, this idea, with some, one of his friends in jail. By the way, if you're in jail and you're playing in a heist, don't tell the other guys, um, because he, that guy turned him in and he was caught. Um, but eventually, though, he became, I don't know, they, he became sort of a, like a mascot for the country. They thought this was hilarious. And um, he got sentenced to like four years in jail, but he was so popular that Kaiser pardoned him after just a couple years. And he basically spent the rest of his life signing autographs for people because of what he did. Isn't that a crazy story? Like, um, Anyway, so down through the years, this became sort of like a German fairy tale. It's been turned into a, a play, and there's there's a couple of movies of, about it. Anyway, it's also become a, a case study on the question of authority. How does authority function in, in like, normal situations like that? And Void's plan, of course, it worked because soldiers are taught, don't question the orders of your superior, right? If they give you an order, you, you follow it. And so this guy shows up dressed as a captain, brimming with confidence and all they had to see was that uniform and that was enough they just deferred to his authority when he grabbed the second group of soldiers he had the uniform and already a little following of soldiers who were following his orders they were just like this looks legit they were all in during the entire heist nobody ever once questioned his authority except the dude (laughs) who was accused of the crime they're like naturally he's he's gonna do this as i was learning about this story though Whoever was telling that, asked the question, and it's it's been bugging me ever since. He said, what would you have done in that situation? And like, I guarantee I would have been, I would have followed the orders. I would have done exactly what they did. I don't know about you, but that's, that's me. And one of the key insights I think this story offers into the way that authority functions stems from the fact that once the soldier said yes, to the authority of the captain. It almost didn't matter what the orders were. They were going to follow them. And once the question of authority is settled, most of the time, the obedience then is sort of a given. That's the power of authority. And it's actually why the question of authority is such an important question for all of us. In our text for today, the big question is what gives Jesus the authority to do the things he does, to heal, to teach, to reinterpret things, to move against some of their customs and stuff. What what gives him the authority to do this? And in response to that question, he starts talking about shepherds and sheep and hired hands, which seems a little bit arbitrary. But actually, the good shepherd as a, a leader is an old, old motif in the Hebrew imagination. There are hundreds of passages in the Old Testament um, that talk about sheep and sheepfolds and hired hands and flocks and wolves and shepherds. It's almost impossible to tell the story of Israel without talking about shepherds. I mean, think of Jacob, like he was, when, when he ran off um, hiding from Esau, he goes to, to Laban's house and watches his flock. He's a, he's a shepherd. That's how he makes his fortune. He, he makes a deal with, with Laban that um, he'll, watch, he'll make his flocks um, increase, but he can get all the spotted or colored sheep. And Laban's like, okay, it sounds good. But Jacob knew how to breed sheep, and so he bred more of those. And Laban was mad, and he's like, okay, well, then I'll take the white ones. And then he switched his breeding practices so there'd be more white ones. Uh, I mean, Jacob, he, he, he gets renamed Israel. He's where they get their name. He was a, a shepherd. Joseph, if you remember, was tending his father's um, flock with his brothers when uh, he tattled on them to Daddy, and they got mad and threw him in the well, and then sold him into slavery. And he ended up in Egypt, second hand man or second man to Pharaoh, interpreting dreams and saves his whole family. But before Joseph was any of those things, he was just this shepherd kid. Moses stumbled on the burning bush while he was tending his father-in-law's sheep in, in Midian. I mean, Moses' shepherd staff is like a character in the story. David, Israel's greatest king and warrior, when Samuel came to Jesse's house to find a new king, they had to run get David. He was off in the hills um, tending the sheep. David was a shepherd. I mean, that's, that's jo- Jacob, Joseph, Moses, David. This is like John, Paul, George, and Ringo of the Hebrew Bible, Right? And these are the greatest Jewish leaders of all time. All of them were shepherds. This is not by accident. So when Jesus claims to be the good shepherd, it it wouldn't have been lost on the people he was talking to, who he's identifying with, especially the Pharisees. He's placing himself within that lineage and drawing a contrast that's cutting toward them between good shepherds and hired hands. And Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd. And then he says, here's how you tell who the good shepherd is, because the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. And here, every, every scholar I read said, this doesn't just refer to the crucifixion. This means all along his life, this is how he lived, laying down his life for his, his sheep. And this is just not something the hired hand is willing to do. The hired hand, he says, who is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and runs away. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. And it says the hired hand runs away because a hired hand does not care for the sheep. And literally in in Greek, it's something like the hired hand flees because he's a hired hand. It's it's just in the hired hand's nature to run off when things get bad because he doesn't care about the sheep. But I am the good shepherd, he says. I know my own. My own know me. Just like I know the father and the father knows me. And I lay down my life for the sheep. Now, this line of of kind of prosecution against leaders would have been familiar to the Pharisees. It's actually, um, there's this famous passage in one of the prophets, Ezekiel, chapter 34. I won't read the whole thing, but you should read it. It's it's really fascinating. um, It's basically this moment where God moves against the shepherds of Israel. He says, woe to you, shepherds of Israel, who only take care of yourselves. You eat the curds and clothe yourselves with wool and slaughter the choice animals, but you do not take care of the flock. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I am against the shepherds and will hold them accountable for my flock. I will remove them from tending the flock so that the shepherds can no longer feed themselves. So this is kind of, deep in israel's history this moment when god essentially fires the shepherds of israel just sacks them and calls them you know hired hands and that's really where things remain when jesus um, begins his ministry the shepherds over israel are all a bunch of illegitimate hired hands they might have power but they don't have authority in a sense because authority comes from this willingness to lay down their lives. It's rooted not in title or position or army or treasury. It's about pouring your life out for those you're supposed to lead unselfishly. That's, that's what it requires. He says also you have to know them. You have to know the people you mean to lead. A good shepherd lays down his life and knows the ones he's, he's leading. And then there's this, this turn. Again, in his explanation, he, he kind of brings up a whole other s- subject that doesn't exactly follow from the one before. He says, "I have other sheep that do not belong to this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. And so there will be one flock, one shepherd." Now, um, this is this is part of why Jesus is the Good Shepherd, because he has other sheep this this would be bothersome to the Pharisees he's saying I, I have other sheep that don't belong to this flock they don't belong to the people of Israel essentially he's saying that Israel's national life is not synonymous with the kingdom of God it, God has called people out of all nations which by the way for them all nations meant all religions because in those day days a nation and their religion this was the same thing they were indistinguishable right? He's got sheep of other flocks. Man, he's got sheep that come from other religions. I mean, think about it. this. is scandalous stuff back then and, and even today. I mean, he's saying this to a bunch of radical Jewish nationalists. Authority comes from a shepherd who knows his sheep, loves them, lays down his life for them. And some of those others are part of, like, whole other flocks. There are members that will one day constitute this flock that, that these hired hands would consider their mortal enemies. And that's why they don't have authority. And, and, and they think they do, but they don't get to define, um, you could say, define the limits of God's grace. if There even are any. This is one of those things that... Um, I think it's easy to miss in in the New Testament because it's everywhere and so I try to bring it up as often as I can that Jesus was always leading his sheep his followers into these situations where they had to choose between their own power and privilege and some relationship that's right in front of them he, he just constantly would ask people to forego their own authority or, or privilege usually in the form of like a belief or law, or custom, or some sort of cultural taboo. He, he'd ask them just to let, let go of a little bit of their own truth, something they were sure about, a certitude um, about how the world was supposed to be organized. Let go of that for the sake of a relationship. Believing that that relationship um, could be a better teacher than all that stuff they were holding on to. I mean, Jesus seemed to believe the only thing powerful enough to get us to sort of rethink our prejudices, our, our um, certainties, was a relationship with someone. And so he would just constantly put people in a place where they had to choose. Do I want to keep the rules or do I, do I want to love this ragamuffin here? Do I want to be right and righteous, especially according to the authorities? Or do I want to be friends with this person who clearly needs And the good shepherd lays down his life for the outcasts. And that's where his or her authority comes from in the kingdom of God. Authority is not based on position. It's based on love. It's based on love. And the love that we see expressed as we become paired with the outcast. And so for us, as we follow, you know, shepherds and our good shepherd, but also the shepherds that, that lead us, we're supposed to find ones who find a way to be paired with the outcasts, in part because this will become a powerful catalyst to change. I mean, I've seen ardent racists disavow their racism because their daughter fell in love with a black man, right? Right? And then they have grandkids who are people of color and, and they're now dead scared about the life these grandkids they love will, will live. And they're just like, I'm done. Like, I'm switching sides on that issue. You know, I've seen passionate opponents of gay rights do a complete 180 because their child comes out to them, Right? Cole always repeats this for staff. It's a Chris Rock joke. He's like, be careful what you hate. God will put it in your family, right? That's that's exactly what will happen. Because we'll, we'll just, we'll, and once we love them, right? Once we love them, man, it's hard. It's hard to hold on to those old prejudices when it's someone we would just, I mean, we'd lay down in traffic for. And this this is the power that Jesus is tapping into when he says, you've got to chase the outcasts, you've got to come with me, that's where I am. I mean, how are you going to hate the good Samaritan man? How are you going to throw the first rock at the woman caught in adultery? You can't. That's what hired hands do, right? They can't lay down their life for those guys. Hired hands will always be ready to sacrifice anyone who doesn't fit within their narrow view of reality and, and where they draw their power from and authority. You know, blind people, it's in the discussion, blind people were, were a source of sinfulness. Needing clay on the Sabbath breaks, breaks the law, I swear. I don't think Jesus needed to need clay on the Sabbath to heal the dude. I think he just wanted to make them mad, right? <laughs> he, he comes along and, and says to his guys, you see it, right? Like These guys have the uniform and they're barking out orders, but this is not your captain." This is a hired hand. And the way you can tell is they don't know the sheep or love or even care about the sheep. They don't love the people God loves, the outcasts. Jesus says there's kind of an easy way to tell who the hired hands are. They're not leading in such a way that they're called continually to, to, to lay down their lives for their sheep. They're leading for their own benefit and what's in it. For them, right? So they don't even really spend that much time um, getting to know the sheep. Uh, The sheep, like, don't even—they don't get used to the sound of each other's voice. Even hired hands are takers. They're there for the paycheck. First sign of danger, they're out the door. And you guys, we live, I think, in a time in which a lot of Christian leadership seems to be in some trouble. There's a lot of hired hands. And it's odd given this is our tradition, you know, and that Jesus kind of boils it down to a really simple way to tell. Hired hands are mostly focused on themselves. You know, they do a lot of like vision casting and talking about how to grow bigger, better, higher, stronger, faster. They do a lot of kind of enemy bashing, right? Who's to blame? who's to fear, and it's not us, we're the good guys, they're the bad guys. And they all seem to live like really fabulous lives, like they have friends in high places. Um, But hired hired hands um, don't move us toward the other who's hard to love. The other who, you know, I mean, it has to be somebody who kind of bothers us a little bit. That, That it takes some introspection, some changing, in order to be in a relationship. Hired hands pit us against each other in anger and grievance and fear. And they look really good in the uniforms, but they lack this essential aspect of their character and purpose. And they they really kind of come to tell us what we want to hear, how we don't have to change, you know. They come in hot, barking orders, blaming, you know, immigrants for our economic problems, and and just ignoring how much we struggle with, like, materialism consumerism and greed, all of us, right? They blame gay people for the disintegration of the family instead of, you know, <laughs> infidelity and selfishness and just our inability to love each other and change and grow and be vulnerable. They blame people of color for poverty and violence instead of trying to see systemic injustice and, and racism that, that can hold people in poverty sometimes for generations. I mean, come on, man. We. We know what these voices sound like. And the voice of the good shepherd does not sound like that. It's um, way more, the the good shepherd's voice is way more annoying. It's just figuring out (laughs) who you can't stand and then going, you got to go be with them until you love them. And the good shepherd doesn't demonize and blame and belittle or insult or exploit you know, if you're laying down your life for your sheep, there's no exploitation or belittle. The good shepherd loves. And, and the good shepherd, it turns out, has a lot of weirdo sheep that are not from normal sheep pens, apparently, right? And, and loves all kinds of strange others and calls those to, who follow him to dare to love that recklessly. Love as he loves. But here's the thing. I, I think we kind of have a problem with Christian leadership. But I'm not in fact, I think we have a problem with leadership in general in our culture, political, civic, um, any any sector. We we have some leadership issues in our culture. But I think it's gotten a little too easy just to blame the leaders. I mean, I don't think Jesus is really telling this story to bash. Israel's leaders, he sorta of goes with Ezekiel 34. They're kind of a lost cause. He's trying to get his followers to take some ownership for who they follow. That's what he's after here. It's too easy to just blame our leaders for our problems in church or in society or wherever. Because if we if we just blame the leader and say it's the leader's fault, then we don't have to take responsibility for what is happening for the way things are and jesus wants to place responsibility for the world back on his people this is part of the movement this is why we read this during resurrection during um easter time he wants us to think carefully about who we follow because once we've surrendered ourselves to an authority right once the question of authority has been settled there's there's gonna be an obedience that comes next Quite natural. The great civil rights leader and pastor um, John Lewis said it this way once in, in a book. I love this. He said, real leaders are not appointed. They emerge out of the masses of the people and rise to the forefront through the circumstances of their lives. Either their inner journey or their human experience prepares them to take that role they do not nominate themselves they are called into service by a spirit moving through a people that points to them as the embodiment of the cause they serve that feels right to me like you could just stamp that on the as the intro to the story of king david he's the last son man and the runt but his experience he even talks about it i faced the lion i faced the bear I face all those nights on my own, the outcast of my family. This is this is where it comes from. Lewis is echoing, I think, the lessons that Jesus teaches yeah. in this passage. But he's not just calling leaders into question. He's saying to the people who follow him, we're responsible for the leaders that we choose. They're not so much appointed; they sort of emerge. We see who they are—the people of character and virtue. They almost just become this living embodiment of what we're about, the cause that we serve, which for us is the kingdom of God. We can't um, just blame our leaders for being hired hands. It's not enough. We're the ones who hired them. And I think this kind of confronts our own tendency to just, just follow the guy or gal in the uniform and and leaders who tell us what we want to hear or believe all of the things that that we believe you know that's what we do with leadership most of the time we want leaders who will do exactly what we would do that way if it works we can go yeah that's what i've been saying and then if it doesn't work we can you know say it's their fault we blame them right this is what we want that's the game we all play in the post resurrection world though Jesus is trying to get his his people to take responsibility for the world. Organize your common life together in such a way that you actually image God so that everything lives at peace and flourishes. I'm putting it on you. He said, I give you the keys to the kingdom. What you bind on earth will be bound on heaven. What you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Like it's up to you. I'm with you. whenever, Whenever two or three are gathered, I'm there in your midst. Now go lead and this is how you do it. Good shepherds lay down their life for their sheep. We're responsible for the world. This is part of what it means to be human. And we're responsible for the leaders that we call from among us. We've got to be looking for good shepherds. And those of us who have any kind of leadership, whether it's um, in work, in families, um, in, in any, any sector, um, church, whatever, We have to be chasing the good shepherd and trying to build our life on his life. And when it comes to leading things, this is where he goes. It's pretty cool. This is the center of leadership. Good shepherds, not hired hands. Evidence, um, as Lewis said, of an inner journey. There's some character there. uh, Lives who have been... um, Refined by the pain of circumstance. Ever knows how you it's hard to trust a leader until they've been through some pain. I, that's often the first thing I look for with people. How much pain? How much pain have you gone through? Because I know you'll be good to people if you've made it through and can still love. The good shepherds willing to lay down their life for their sheep. this This is Christ's qualification for leadership. And then they have sheep that are not of this fold. They're always thinking, "Man, who's out there who just needs the love of God to become real to them?" And they're like, "I'll go first That's that's it. And ultimately, we follow Christ, our good shepherd, which means we got to learn to discern the shepherd's voice. That means time in the scriptures more than anything. That means the gospels. I mean, my practice is I just I try to get one chapter a day and I just cycle through all four of them straight through Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, start over. Learn this this voice of our shepherd. Make his language our language. But there's also a sense in which we're responsible for the leaders um, we choose to follow in our homes, in our workplaces, our neighborhoods, families, our churches, our communities, and just society as a whole. And it's a big deal because once we've settled the question of authority, there will be obedience that follows. Jesus makes us responsible for the leaders we follow. Not just some guy or gal in a uniform, but we're looking for character. We're looking for the good shepherd who lays down his or her life for those around them and who reaches to the people who don't have anybody. That's that's who we're chasing. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the this story. For the way that Jesus tried to go gently with um, the Pharisees and his followers. And instead of just inciting a knockdown, drag out, he just patiently tells them what what they all know to be true. And I pray that all of us in in the domains that we exercise leadership, that we would um, follow this good shepherd. I pray that you would also open up opportunities for all of us to um, reach to those who are kind of Not of this fold, you know, not in our normal circles. People who live on the margins of culture. Just people in our daily life who are just struggling. Those for whom life hasn't worked out so great. Or maybe just not worked out in the normal way. And teach us to reach out to them. Give us courage. Mostly I just give you thanks for Redemption Church and these ragged muffins who who know this is true and the way they live it out every single day. I'm so grateful. We pray this all in the name of Christ. Amen invite you all to stand, and we're going to receive communion. Hopefully you got the elements when you um, came in. If you don't have, though, uh, the communion elements, Beth is standing right in the back with a a basket, and she'll hook you up. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread and broke it. After he had given thanks, he he, um, handed it to his followers and said, This is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he passed this common cup around to them, asking them to drink from it. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, a new deal between you and God. And he said, whenever you get together, eat this bread, drink this cup, take my life into your life, become like me, and then bear my image, the image of God out into the world he said whenever you get together to worship do this in remembrance of me and so that's why we receive communion we're just reminding ourselves we're feasting on christ and trying to be made of the stuff he's made of and then walk out into the world in imitation of christ and so that's what we're doing here today and we just invite you to hold the elements in front of you and let's pray a blessing upon them Lord, we give you thanks for the bread and the cup. May it be to us a means of your grace, a spiritual food and drink. And as we receive it into our bodies, may we receive you once again. Come and live inside us. Make us new from the inside out. And then send us out into the world to be salt and light And let the world feast on us and taste and see your goodness. To the glory of Jesus Christ, our risen Savior, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forevermore. Amen. I invite you to receive um, communion and then join us in our closing song.